How's it going? It's good. It's good. How's it going with you? Not too bad. I think just working. I'm curious. No, go for it. Mm-hmm. I'm just not. I'm not sure if Zoom has a little bit of a delay or not. So I'm just trying to like gauge yeah, it. But I, think I hope good. so. Us and the 200 yeah. other million people who are using Zoom this week. I know. Do you think it's Do you think it's bogged down right now? Is everybody trying I mean, to talk to each other? Given how many people are using right now, I'm very pleasantly surprised how well it seems to be working. I think they are. Too, well, they're probably not pleasantly surprised. They're probably like, "This is what we planned yeah. for." But no, I'm just like working through my bitterness at like all of these other people who've discovered that baking bread is really fun in the last two weeks. We've made it very difficult. Yeah, we've been there. We've lived in that. No, for all a I want is to be able to get some nice bread flour. And there was exactly nope. one bag of bread flour at the grocery store this week. Yeah, you and everybody else, apparently. I'm going to try and make sourdough. Oh, wait, it takes a week? Yeah, I've been like, I've had like one or two people who have reached out and been like, you do this. How how can I go about mm-hmm. doing it? And so I've just mm-hmm. been challenged because like I learned by someone like showing me what it looked like and like making me smell what it smelled like when it was going well and it's hard to like transfer that knowledge via the internet but by they're god gonna they're gonna try. try and i think like one of them is gonna succeed because she does like brewing so like yeasty things is in her okay. wheelhouse so yeah but everyone else is like yeah i don't bake but like sourdough feels like an easy place to start oh boy and that's those, that's the crappy thing is like the last time i did it um which was this week i tried to make a loaf mm-hmm. did not turn out did not turn out. I think because of temperature mm. issues in my house. Like it never got its first rise. And then I also was trying to like combo two recipes, which yeah. I also don't <laughs> recommend. I was like, I know enough about this to know. And I did know putting it into the oven. I was like, this mm-hmm. isn't going to work out. But you've already invested but a couple of hours. Yeah, going back it, now. So you kind of have to. Like days. Ugh. Like a day. Yeah. Yeah. No, I finally, finally like got my early. starter like robust enough that like I haven't had a bad loaf in the last week. Um, but it involved like two and a half weeks of trial and error. Like which spot in the kitchen should it live in? Like how hot did the water need to be? Turns out my kitchen is just really cold. Like incredibly, incredibly cold all the time. Yeah. Well also like our our yeah, our um temperature dropped like in the middle of making it. So I, it was out in the kitchen and then within like a day it was like not the same yeah. starter, you know, and I, I just don't think it, it was a pretty, it's a pretty young starter too. So it just hasn't built <laughs> up enough. That's why I'm asking about wheat flour. Cause I can't, anyway, we don't need this bag <laughs> pocket, but, um, yeah, I need some different flour to put in there to like yeah. make it live a little bit happier life, you know, I mean, <laughs> you know, that'll be for our yeah, other we could do show. a spinoff bread podcast. Bread. What everybody needs to know. Yeah. I feel right like now. there's not enough bread-related content. (laughs) Bread content. Welcome to Missing History, a podcast where each episode we discover the ladies we wish we'd learned about in history class. We uncover their stories, investigate their impact, and discuss how they've been ignored or sidelined. Today's episode contains references to violence... Well, okay. I'm going to get comfy. Um, don't get too comfortable, though, because okay. I'm just going to start with a oh. question for you. Um, oh, okay. I'll 
Okay. I'm, okay. I was confused. So, um, the sort of preface to this is there's, again, sort of cross-promoting podcasts that don't pay us to cross-promote them. Um, there's a great BBC comedy podcast called You're Dead to Me, where they bring, like, a historian and a Ooh. comedian on to talk about, like, a Ooh. famous historical figure. Oh, no. It's that's, like, really my It's really funny. Not as funny as us. Not as informative as us. But close. Uh, but they always start with a, like, so what do you know section? Like, trying to get a sense of, like, what does the comedian know about the topic and what do they think people know about the topic? Um, so I kind of want to start mm-hmm. this one with a similar thing because the woman I chose for the week doesn't quite fit our normal, like, unknown, underappreciated tagline. But I think okay. we don't quite know her for the right reasons, or at least, like, don't know all of the, like, oh, cool oh, oh, reasons oh. we should. Okay. And so I'm sort of curious to get, mm. like, a, as, like, a benchmark, sort of, what do you know? We have a preconceived notion I think so, and I want to try to tear down incorrect. a little bit of that. Um, so, okay. I think that falls within the lines of our mission great. statement. We'll, we'll, let's, we'll see how it goes. If we get bad reviews, we can always mm-hmm. go back and fix it. Um, but so, Katie, what do you know about Florence Nightingale? Okay. Nursing. Okay. I want to say, oh, nineteenth century mm-hmm, mm-hmm. nursing, and maybe like figured out you should wash hands, but she's not like the germ theory person. Yeah. that's a different. That's attributed yes. to a yes, man yes, yes. somewhere, but I don't think she hurt that cause. Like she was like, yeah, maybe mm-hmm. we should clean ourselves up. Um, and then I think just, I don't know what war though. I don't know what country she's from. I'm assuming she's helped start the Red Cross or like made the Red Cross. I don't know. Something with the Red Cross. I don't think she founded it. Close. Maybe she did. So didn't found the Red Cross, but otherwise all of those things smack on. Nursing, 19th century, cleaning. Can I guess, can I guess the, well, yeah, well, like battlefield yeah. warfare, right? Mm-hmm. That kind of nursing, not like hospital stuff. You can guess, can the, guess war. the war. Yes. Nicely done. Yes. Where did we pull that from? Do I know who fought in the Crimean War? No. Yep. I think Russia's involved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Great. No, was she, she was British. Yeah, with that name, I would, yeah. I would hope but so. But that's, okay. that's pretty impressive. Okay, okay so, so we've got like a good... Okay, okay, Crimean War. I don't know anything about the Crimean bit. War. Um, Great. It, and I think it will tie in well with who you're doing, too. So this is good. We're on a good page. This is a good start. There's, there yeah. is a little overlap, um, yeah. But cool, yeah. I think that, like, that. my sense is like, that's, I mean, that's what I knew about her before I started researching this. Um, like, nurse, 19th century clean things are better less people die when we're clean that sort of what? broad concept revolution Truly. um but then in like sort of digging in more there's a lot of like a lot of the work she did after the crimean war like the crimean war is like a very small chunk of the work she does over the course of her life um and that like the stuff she does that really revolutionizes nursing isn't the stuff she gets remembered for so I think, like, my hope is, like, we can talk a little bit about the war stuff, but then also get to talk a bit about, like, the cool math stuff that she does that, like, really changes things. Because mm. as with all great things, it's really the math that's the sexy part. 
your voice says one, or the words say one thing and your tone says another, <laughs> and I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. So, like, so let's rub in. So, she was born okay. in 1820 to British parents traveling in Italy. Do you want to take a guess what mm-hmm. city Florence Nightingale was born in? In Italy. In what Italy? Italian city? I know I'm asking mm, you to do a lot of work right at the beginning. I don't think this is super fair. Rome. Mm-hmm. No, I'm kidding. Florence. She is straight she up named after Florence? the city she was born in. And like her sister, right. who was also born while her parents were traveling, they spent a fair amount of time in Italy, um, was named after Naples, but at least she was named after like the Latin name for Naples. So her like at first glance, her name isn't just the English name of the city she was born in in Italy. But for Florence, they got a little lazy, I guess. And we're just like, no, we're just going to call you Florence. What is Florence in I Italian? Don't, I don't actually know. Isn't it Florence? But, I, but it's not. Hold I on. don't think it's Google what machine. it is in Latin. But then her sister is named after the Latin name for Naples. Firenze? Hmm. That does sound right. Does that sound right? So they were just Firenze. going with the English. I don't know if that's real. That's what Google says. What's the Italian name for Florence? Firenze. There we go. There you go. Um, and <laughs> All right. That's what Google says. You can take it up with them if you don't like it. Uh, so Florence, born in Florence. Uh, the reason she's born in Florence is because her dad, William, and her mom, Francis, are both pretty wealthy. Uh, dad inherited a lot of money from his father, who was a banker. Francis comes from sort of a wealthy intellectual family. And so they have lots of social capital. They have lots of capital capital mm-hmm. and lots of connections mm-hmm. to this mm-hmm. sort of like prominent upper middle class collection of British people that is sort of coalescing in the early 19th century. Um, and because mm-hmm. what else do like wealthy aristocrats do? Her dad has a lot of time on his hands when Florence and her sister are growing up. So he sort of tutors them, t- like looks after their education, makes sure that even though they are women, they actually get like a pretty robust classical education for that period. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's also pretty clear early on that like Florence has interests in math and particularly in statistics. um, And that, that is like an interest that he very much encourages in her. So not only are they like very much living among the sort of movers and shakers of middle-class British life, um, like meeting lots of cool Mm -hmm. people who come to hang out with their parents because their parents are like, part of this like wealthy intellectual circle but she and her sister as well are both like taking part in that as like intellectual equals in a way um and that's you know going to be a bit of an issue for the men in her life um because unlike this is a bit of a digression but unlike most of the other people we talk about who are like strong powerful Mm -hmm. women and the men in her life don't like her because of that Florence is, like, a strong, powerful mm-hmm. woman, woman, and there's this guy who's, like, really into her, and she's really into him, but ultimately they decide, oh. and by they decide, I mean, Florence rejects his proposal uh, because she wants to be able to oh. sort of pursue her own dreams and thinks that that's not possible yeah. in married life, but still likes the dude, mm-hmm. and so they, like, keep, like, a fairly robust friendship the rest of their lives. Which is like mm-hmm. a friendship. Yeah, okay. and unfortunately, it does seem to actually be a friendship. There's like nothing super steamy oh, there, which okay. is disappointing. They're too they're too good Victorians for it to be anything more fun than that. Two Victorian yes. British people, so super in touch with who they are as people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's actually that's sort of Florence's. Her basically, you could describe her entire twenties as like 
trying to figure out who she is, trying to get in touch with, like, who she is as a person. Um, she has, like, a bit mm-hmm. of a, a a rather dramatic, like, quarter-life crisis in her mid-twenties. Um, she's always sort of mm-hmm. struggled broadly with the expectations for upper-class women um, and simultaneously is sort of developing this social conscience about poverty and the sort of crisis that is, like, British working-class life in the Industrial Revolution. It's, like, not necessarily the best time mm-hmm. to be a worker. Um, mm-hmm. And simultaneously mm-hmm. with that, she's also having a religious crisis of conscience. So sort of, like, three of these crises, these, like, sort of existential crises piled on in her, like, late teens and early 20s. Uh, so just, like, a lot happening for her. Um, but mm-hmm. it's... It, and just sort of for context, she has her first of what is a number of what she thinks of as calls from God at 16. So sort of very early is feeling this push to go do something. But the problem is in her 20s, she has no idea what that means, like what she's supposed to go do. And it doesn't really help that like, there's not a whole lot of options if you're like a respectable English gentlewoman about like how you can go be of service. Um, her family, like, runs some schools on their estates, and her mother and her sister sort of take part in, like, what could be considered sort of more traditional charity work, but she doesn't find that particularly fulfilling. And so when she's 24, she asks permission to go be a nurse, uh, and they are like, no, you can't do that. Um, and in large part because nursing at this time is seen as, like, lower class work. It's basically, like, any other service job that, like, sort of working class women would take on and so it's not seen as particularly respectable and the only real way you could do it if you were sort of upper class is if you joined a religious order um Mm -hmm. and so Florence is obviously like pretty upset about this but also interestingly like doesn't choose to defy her family she sort of like takes their refusal to support her doing that and so decides not to pursue it um and so she's going to spend the next couple of years traveling with friends in Europe goes back to Italy for a little bit spends some time in Egypt which it turns out is like a very British women thing to do in the 19th century is to go sail up the Nile and to like hang out with some friends Hmm. and like write about sailing up the Nile. So she like visits the pyramids and stuff like that. Like very like sort of. I'm just getting such like um, room with a view vibes, Mm. but like earlier, I don't know if you ever had to read that book, but they go on holiday to Italy. They go Mm -hmm. on like the grand tour and it's like the thing, you know, that all the rich British people do. They did like a tour mm-hmm. of the continent and go take in the masters yeah, or whatever Yeah, that, that all checks out. So this is like the OG version of that. Like, let's go to classical antiquity and like yeah. research. And that's very much sort of what she spends like a good chunk of the rest of her 20s mm-hmm. doing. Um, she's eventually going to sort of come back home to England, um, but not before stopping off in Germany, where she sort of has this crystallizing experience she visits a group of Lutheran um, sort of like religious who are doing nursing work and caring for the poor and have sort of some different ideas about how to go about nursing. And she is really taken with this. And so when she comes back to England in 1850, she's sort of set. She's like, I want to be a nurse. I want to do that kind of nursing. And so goes back to Germany um, to the community, which is called Kaiserwerth or Kaiserwerth. I'm going to butcher the German, Mm -hmm. um, to do sort of a couple of months of study with them to learn their techniques or how they approach their work. Um, 
And then when she comes back to England after that second trip to Germany, she's like, cool, I know what I'm doing. I know what we're going to do this. Like, let's go for it. But then the weird thing mm-hmm. is that's not actually what gets her into nursing. What it like actually gets her into nursing is this really weird family dynamic thing that's happening. Um, so her sister, mm-hmm. who is also unmarried, who is also still living at home with her family, is also struggling with this like sort of upper class like aimlessness in a way. Um, gets like mm-hmm. ill, and the sort of the way it's described is she becomes obsessive about Florence. I'm not quite sure what that means, but I think it's sort of an allusion to, like, whether it's mental health problems or just, like, they're spending too much family time together. Um, But a bunch of family friends are, like, very concerned, both for her sister's well-being, but also for Florence's. So there must have been some sort of dynamic in the house that was, like, not healthy for the two of them. Um, And so, interestingly, one Mm -hmm. of the sets of friends who knows sort of what Florence's interests are and also knows sort of the family's objections to her becoming a nurse... Um, suggests she takes up the position as a superintendent for the Establishment for Gentlewomen During Illness, which is this hospital for governesses in London, which is this, like, very Mm -hmm. 19th century thing of, like, every particular group has a specific hospital for them, and so you go to the hospital sort of meant for your group. Um, And interestingly, in this moment, her family agrees, and her father agrees to give her, like, a living allowance to support herself because the position is like an unpaid sort of volunteer position. Um, But they give her permission. And so she's finally able to sort of go off and join the world of nursing. Um, But sort of steps from like never having done it before to running a hospital, which is only the kind of thing you can do if you've got daddy's money and it's 19th century England. Mm. But last one was a little flexible. (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but she like to her credit and the reason we're talking about her is because she does a really good job when she gets that opportunity um she pushes for renovations for the hospital she forces the board of trustees to let them treat catholic and jewish patients because they weren't doing that before because 19th century england is great um and then there's this Mm -hmm. big cholera outbreak sort of in their first year running the hospital and she apparently is like incredibly helpful and supportive helping other hospitals deal with it um sort of this force in and around london um and it's really clear that her talent isn't necessarily for nursing but it's for organizing um for sort of showing up at an institution figuring out what changes she wants to make and how to go about doing that um and a lot of people sort of see her as being really really good at this about figuring out how people and things and systems sort of all need to work together and then figuring out what kind of changes she needs to go about making in order for things to function. Um, And that's the skill set that really gets her sort of involved in the Crimean War um, over and above sort of her specifically as a nurse. Also helps she's got the family connections. So one of her family friends, his name is Sidney Herbert, also happens to be the Secretary of State for War Mm -hmm. when the Crimean War starts. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, so, it's super confusing. But as much as I understand it, there is, like, some weird stuff going on in the Middle East between, like, France, the Ottoman Empire, and Russia. But what that results in... One of those is a life story. Oh my god. So, but so so the thing I don't quite get is how we get from there to 
France, Britain, and Turkey invading the Crimean Peninsula, which is, as Russia goes, fairly close to the Middle East, but not that close to the Middle East. Google Crimea. Um, It is, like, across the Black Sea from Turkey. And it is, like... Okay, so it's where those people all have stakes. Yes, although, like, Britain and France, less so, but it's more at this moment... Oh, what? No, I'm sorry. It's not where I thought it was. Yeah. What? Why are France and Britain over there? I'm like not 100% there? sure and probably should have done a little bit more digging into that, but I was mostly just like, this is confusing, but it feels like imperial interests getting crossed and you don't yeah. at that point really need much more of an explanation than that. Um, it makes sense why Turkey and Russia would fight over it. You know, as imperial powers, or I'm sorry, the Ottoman Empire and Ro- Russia would fight. Fu- yeah, know. it's Is still it Russia. Russia at this point. Okay, great. Sorry. <laughs> uh, technically, today, for those of you sitting at home, it looks more like part of Ukraine mm-hmm. than ever. And it anything. used to, until very recently, be part of Ukraine. But oh, and they, they just did. took it back, didn't That's they? The That's part the part they were, they were fighting over, over yeah, so- wasn't it? What the heck is wrong with Russia, man? Oh, God, they're going to listen to this. Uh, But yeah, the the Crimean Peninsula does, Um, like, it features very, very prominently in... Well, why do they need the Black Sea if they have the upper part by Finland? You know, I understand you want a waterway, but, like, why do you need all the waterways? So the big thing is it's this huge thing in Russian history is they want a warm water port because all of those northern ports freeze at some point in the winter, and so you can't get ships in and out. okay, 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 okay. And they can't use the Caspian Sea because that mm-hmm. doesn't go anywhere. So the Black Sea is how they get to the Mediterranean. Is how they get to yeah. Well, yeah. If we're putting a bunch of crap on boats, do we even do that anymore? I mean, like, I guess we do. Let's not defile the shipping industry. But like, ugh, it's so 18th century. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're gonna take the Crimean real again. Okay, I guess that's what you want. All right, I guess that's yeah. the easiest way. So now, now it's it part, of, part Russia of Russia again. again. Thus the little dotted yes, line at the top of it. although it's not necessarily okay. like How? people aren't cool with that. As Weird. So it was yeah, Ukraine. So, right, so it was Russia and then it was Ukraine for a while and now it's Russia again. Re- very, very recently. Recently yeah. it's Russia again. Gross. Yeah. Okay. So we're there. Not quite sure why, but we're fighting. Okay. Um, and they're like, the... Well, warm water ports, that really gets my blood going, you know? Gotta really fight it out Mm -hmm. about that stuff. Okay. So they're fighting, and it's not going Mm -hmm. super well for really anyone. Um, But normally that's not a problem, because, like, it's far away, like, people don't know about it. Uh, But this is the first time, because of the advent of the telegraph, that you can have war correspondence Mm -hmm. with the soldiers at the front, writing and people are reading about it pretty close like as close to real time as they ever had like something could happen and like Mm -hmm. two or three days later you'd be reading about it in a newspaper in britain and like newspapers at this period are like pretty sensationalist but even on top of that like things are just not great um and so the british public is reading all these reports about the war and they're like wow this is awful Someone should do something to fix this. And particularly someone should do something to fix the poor treatment of sort of wounded soldiers in hospitals. Dun, dun, dun. 
something mm-hmm. we all have a stake in. So enter mm. Florence Nightingale, who, as the story goes, she writes a letter to her friend, the Secretary of State for War, the same day he writes her a letter. And they're both basically asking the same thing. Oh. She's asking for permission to go lead a group of nurses to these hospitals, and he's asking her to go lead a group of nurses to these hospitals. And so they're like, oh, great, we both have the same idea. Let's go do this. And so she is sort of deputized by the government to go take this group of nurses and sort of oversee a bit of formal reform to the hospitals in Turkey. So she's got official permission from the government to Mm -hmm. be there. Um, They finance her to take a group of 38 nurses over to the British hospitals in Turkey, which is where they were treating most of their wounded. Um, And so in November Mm -hmm. 1854... She has had like a year and a half's experience of running a hospital and she is off to Turkey to be the head of nursing for four British hospitals. Um, So pretty quick promotion. Um, And like, if you think about it too hard, you're like, this is bonkers. Like she's really good at what she does, but also she's been doing this for like a year and suddenly she's in charge of it for like this whole military campaign. Um, and it's really lucky mm-hmm. she turns out to be really good at it. Um, and this is sort of the part of the story that, like, most people, I think, know, right? Like, she's there taking care of the wounded soldiers, trying to make things better, clean up the hospitals, make them more organized, sort of institute basically enough standards that you don't, you're not any worse for having come to the hospital than you would be if you had just, like, mm-hmm. sort of been left to get better on your own. Because one of the, like, big problems with hospitals everywhere at this period, but particularly hospitals sort of in war zones is they're like very dirty. They're very crowded. They're breeding grounds for disease because people aren't washing their hands. They're not really washing any of the surgical implements they're using. There's no sort of organization. People are just sort of tucked wherever they can fit. So it's dirty. It's sort of nightmarishly crowded and loud and just like not a place you'd want to be, particularly not a place you'd want to be if you're trying to get Mm. better. Um, And so she sort of sets about doing what she does best, which is organizing. And so improves conditions Mm -hmm. in the hospital, reorganizes the orderly staff, the nursing staff, comes up with a centralized food system, starts a laundry system, Mm -hmm. all the while sort of writing back to London, like, this is what we need. This is how it's going. Um, Anytime any of the sort of military officials try to get in the way, she makes it very clear she has friends in high places who are like here hey, to support work that her. Angle. Um, and mm-hmm. a couple of months after she arrives, this other group, sort of the sanitary commission shows up and helps sort of clean up things even more. And so between her work and the sanitary commission, mortality for things like disease drop really significantly in these hospitals. And all of a sudden, sort of over the course mm-hmm. of a couple months, a hospital becomes like a fairly reasonable place to go. Still not a great place to go, but like you won't, it's not like a death sentence in the way that it could have been at the beginning of the war. Um, mm-hmm. And like, interestingly, her the like figure that really gets her famous is not all of this organizing, um, but these sort of very um, sort of dramatized articles or letters written about her walking around the wards in the evening, sort of carrying a lantern, checking in on patients. And it's where she gets the yeah. like... That is the definite, like, imagery that comes to mind. is like, mm-hmm. a nun-looking yeah. nurse, right? With the There's this very habit. famous painting of her with a lamp 
taking like looking after a wounded soldier where she basically looks like the virgin mary like straight up out of like a renaissance painting um yeah and it's very much this like sort of angel of mercy vibe she gets this nickname the lady with the lamp and that's sort of the like iconography as she's always walking around sort of in a dark hospital with this lamp looking after patients um and while she did do that and um like definitely like played a role in sort of patient care. Most of what she was doing Mm -hmm. was this like very not sexy, but very important, like organizing and getting supplies and making sure that like everything that needed to happen happened. Um, But of course, like that's, you can't sell newspapers with that. Um, So it's this other figure. It's not, it's not what they wanted the nurse to be. And so she gets this reputation, which in a lot of ways doesn't necessarily align with the work she feels most proud of but at the same time is more than willing to use that reputation to her own ends to get the public support she needs, to raise money for what she's doing. Um, Queen Victoria, it turns out, is a huge fan, sends her a jeweled brooch as a thank you, because that's what the queen does when okay. she likes what you're doing. Like, big, like, Ruth Bader Ginsburg-style yeah. brooch. I mean, it is an era of brooches, yeah. Yeah, uh, and so... Victorian times. I think they like a big jewel on a on a pashmina. Yes, like the, yeah, the little like like sash across with the like giant jewels on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very yeah. very much that that vibe. Um, mm-hmm. And so she's going to basically be doing this through the end of the war. She spends some time on the Crimean Peninsula, it's more time in Turkey, but doing this kind of work like organizing hospitals, making sure that like things are as clean as they can be, as efficient as they can be. Um, and that's sort of very much, like, the Crimean War is where she makes her national reputation um, as someone who is, like, very good at nursing, very good at organizing nurses, very good at organizing hospitals. Um, okay. But Girlfriend is going to live for quite a long time. She's going to do a whole lot. Okay. So what year so are we at right in now? in the mid-1850s. I think the war ends in, like, 1856. Um, and spoiler alert, she's okay. going to be around... Until she's like eighty something, or not no ninety something, so she's gonna be around mm-hmm. into the twentieth century. So she's got quite some more time left, um, and she's gonna. Wow. And so the, this is sort of the thing. It's like the thing she's known for, while like important, is this very like small part of her biography. And now she's gonna go off and like sort of parlay that experience into a whole lot of other really interesting work that one could argue have like a sort of greater impact on the nursing profession and like health and public health more broadly. Okay. So she gets back. She's like as famous as a nurse can be in 19th century England. Um, And remember from earlier, she's really into statistics. And so this is where these sort of two things come together in a really powerful and new way. Um, Is that sort of in the, in the war she started doing this, of using statistical data, sort of collecting information as a way to advance her arguments. And she realized over the course of this mm-hmm. that, like, people, especially people at this point, are, like, fairly intimidated by numbers because most of them, even if they're literate, like, their understanding of mathematics is fairly limited. And so she realizes mm-hmm. that, like, the easiest way to use numbers to convince people is by displaying them graphically. So sort of, like, the way we are all used Smart. to like, infographics at this point or, like, diagrams, charts, she in a way pioneers that technique for public health. Um, so using, wow. um, particularly there's this one diagram she uses a lot called the polar area diagram, where it's um, basically like 
looking at causes of death in each month in a hospital yeah. and the so it's a circle and each month is a little like wedge like basically a piece of that pie and going out from the center you have like the smallest cause of death and then the next color out is the next smallest and then so on so that like each wedge is sort of filled up by different colors representing like how many people died from wounds how many people died from treatable diseases how many people died from like infections or like sanitary conditions or things like that and basically oh and like keeping track of that stuff so then the medical field is accountable exactly so you can point and be like well look like yes like 4,000 people died last month, but 3,000 of them died because they got sick, and only 1,000 of them died because they mm-hmm. got shot. And so you're in, able to, like, sort of take that data apart and be like, oh, yeah, if we clean the hospitals up, we're actually going to save a lot more lives than, like, investing mm-hmm. in this, like... Oh, you guys need more money to, like, keep the hospitals clean. Oh, that's exactly. where we should spend the money. Got it. Got um, it. And it's sort of the first time people have been making those kind of arguments by using data that they had collected to advance policy and obviously like we're really used to that at this point because that is at least ostensibly how most government policy is made nowadays um, or at least how we would hope most government policy is made um well yeah and it's not made in such a clinical way that you lose sight of the like yeah but it's like it's the idea that like data can be a tool for helping people and being like this is where we yeah. we should direct more races. Is your phone I guess it right? is, which is weird because I had it set on silent. Um, yeah, I just heard a buzzer more than ringing. Um, no, you're okay. So she sort of, in a way, pioneers this this tool for advancing a public health argument, and then right away is like, mm-hmm. first place we got to use this is the army because you guys are a mess, like literally and figuratively, a mess. Um, and because she's really good friends with the queen now uses those relationships oh, yeah. to sort She's of got that push brooch. the army to institute a series of health changes. So they sort of adopt for the first time, like hygiene is something they teach their doctors. They build their hospitals to be like <laughs> cleaner and easier to maintain. That's yep, the chapter we're on. <laughs> um, and oh, so God. by using this data that she's collecting is able to make these arguments to the army that this is where they should invest their resources. Um, and mm-hmm. so that's sort of like the first big project she tackles when she gets back. Um, but unfortunately, pretty quickly after she gets back, she suffers sort of what's described as a cardiac episode. So when she was in Crimea, she'd gotten really oh. sick, but had recovered, mm-hmm. or at least so she thought. Um, but the illness she had is sort of, it turns out is recurring. And so for the next 20 years or so, she's going to suffer sort of recurring bouts of this like cardiac thing that leaves her like really bedridden. She like can't really get out of the house that much. She ends up having to spend like a lot more time at home than she would originally like, Um, Mm -hmm. which in a way sort of makes all of the rest of the stuff she does really impressive because she's doing it basically through writing letters and occasionally, like, seeing people when they visit, but basically through, like, sheer force of will through letters convinces, like, a whole bunch of people to do a whole bunch of things, um, which is, like, mm-hmm. really impressive when you think about, like, how rarely someone reads and does the email you send them nowadays. The thought of, like, mm-hmm. managing mm-hmm. all of these big projects just through letters is kind of staggering. Yeah, it keeps you busy, you know, gives you something to focus yeah. on. Um, not that we know anything about that in this particular moment. Nope. Nope, I don't know what stress <laughs> is right now. Um, 
But so while she's sort of recovering from this, she's still pushing for these reforms in the army. In 1858, she's going to be the first female member of the Royal Statistical Society, which is a big deal if you like your statistics. Hmm. Um, She's also writing a lot at this time. Um, So she's going to, in 1859, publishes two books, one of them on notes on nursing, which is her sort of laying out her approach to nursing, what she thinks is important. And it's sort of meant, is aimed in as much as there is like a, like a medical audience for it. It's aimed at them, but also is very widely read by the public. And is actually going to go through a couple more editions that it becomes increasingly directed at like encouraging people, particularly women, particularly mothers to like adopt these changes in how they keep their house clean and how they like Mm -hmm. take care of their kids and their Mm -hmm. family Mm -hmm. um, to sort of encourage public health through hygiene and through keeping things clean. Um, And then she's also going to write notes on hospitals, very uh, creative topics, creative titles. Um, But Mm -hmm. in this, this turns out to be like one of the most influential things she writes. um, And she's going to become a big advocate for what's called the pavilion hospital design, which isn't really something we Mm -hmm. use nowadays, but is sort of like the height of hospital design in the 19th century. And rather than like narrow corridors with small rooms for individual patients, the idea it's sort of those like big open hospitals with like a row of beds along each wall and big windows. The idea being that there's like lots of ventilation, lots Mm -hmm. of light, it's easy to see. It's sort of like a bright, healthy place. and hmm. as she writes this, in the process of sort of putting it out, becomes one of the, like, foremost experts on hospital design um, and is going to advise on the designing of, like, almost 50 hospitals. I did not realize... <laughs> I'm going to let you finish. Sorry. So much. Yeah. There's just she, so much. I mean, so she's writing about nursing. She's writing about hospitals. She's consulting about hospitals. She's doing all this statistical work. Um, and in 1860, mm-hmm. she founds a nursing school. Uh, which is the first um, sort of formal nursing school. It's the first nursing training program outside of like a religious order that exists in the UK Mm -hmm. um, and possibly in the world at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's going to train basically a generation of nurses who are going to take her methods and take them to all of these other institutions. So she not Mm -hmm. only is sort of putting her own ideas into, into practice personally, but also is training all of these other nurses to take them and then go run hospitals go run other health institutions the way that she thinks is best um and that school is now called the florence nightingale school of nursing and midwifery which is at midwifery which midwifery is my favorite words yeah. it's a great um word. and on top of all that she's also working with the british government in india to do this big survey of like health and sanitary conditions Um, And it's this, like, weird confluence of imperialism, but at this point in British imperial history, they're sort of sending more British troops to India because there's been these sort of big changes in how Britain wants to govern India as a colony. And so all of a sudden you have all of Mm -hmm. these Europeans in India getting really sick because they're not used to the climate, they're not used to the diseases that are there, and also the conditions they're living in are like not conducive to being healthy. And so she's sort of taking her experience mm-hmm. with statistics, taking her experience with hygiene and helping the British government figure out like, how can they send all of these troops there without them all dying? Which on one hand is good. We don't want people dying. On other hand is like 
possibly problematic because it's, it's perpetuating the British occupation of India. Um, but in this process, she mm-hmm. realizes that like the importance of health, you can't have a healthy occupying army if you don't have a healthy population. So in this weird sort of backwards mm-hmm. way ends up also really helping sort of improve public health in India um, for the Indian populations. Mm-hmm. Um, and the basic advice is pretty sound. Like some of the details or some of the other ideas she has are a little off, but like the basic idea is like clean water is important. Ventilation is a good thing. Overcrowding is a bad thing are still really sound mm-hmm. public health ideas. Clean water, always a great thing. Super here for it. And so those are sort of the policy ideas that she pushes with the British government as priorities in India. And a lot of it is actually stuff that they end up implementing. So she has a pretty sort of outsized influence on British foreign policy in India for a woman who spent 20 years not being able to leave her apartment, which is just sort of Hmm. bonkers. Wild. Um, And she's doing like a bunch of other sort of smaller projects, helping with specific hospitals or specific issues or causes through this time. And is going to keep working basically until like 1902, 1903, like well into her 80s. mostly from her house, Mm -hmm. mostly by writing letters or convincing other people to take on projects, but is sort of coordinating what we might consider like this sort of like massive empire projects effectively from her living room. Um, And actually Mm -hmm. ends up like in her later years becoming very like, I think spry's the word one uses, but like sort of recovers from her illness, is able to go out more, is able to be sort of more physically present Mm -hmm. with her work. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's sort of this... All of this sort of combining is what lets her have this sort of outsized influence on nursing. The fact that she's able to do all this writing, the fact that she's able to use all of her connections to influence policy, the fact that there's all these graduates from her nursing school who go off and run these other institutions. Um, well, and she had really great branding with that. Mm-hmm. And, and she a hundred percent, like, mm-hmm. even though personally she doesn't like the branding is a hundred percent willing to use it, like uses it to raise money to pay for the nursing school uses it to raise money for these other projects. Um, It's definitely, like, not quite sure how she feels about being famous, but isn't above using being famous Mm -hmm. to achieve the goals she's setting out for herself. Um, Yeah. And is really ultimately pretty successful at that. Like, by the time she passes away in 1910, like, nursing is a respectable profession with professional credentials. It's sort of where the, like the idea of being a registered nurse evolves during this time. So Britain develops a national registry of nursing. Um, It's really sort of the whole medical profession, the whole like medical world is professionalizing at this point. And she in Mm -hmm. large part is responsible for like nursing in the United Kingdom and then in the United States as well, professionalizing at the same time. And it's this emphasis on like statistical data, collecting and interpreting statistics as being the central tool for public Mm -hmm. health which in a lot of ways is still how we do public health today. Like you collect statistics, you test a bunch of people. Yeah. That's the part that's crazy to think about. Like the math element of her work is just as important as. Everything yeah. Else and it's doing. really, I mean, it's because it proves exactly. the point. And like you know? that it's, it's interesting. Like the, the late 19th century is this period where governments start doing exactly what she's arguing for, which is like collecting lots of data and then using that data to sort of do policy around. Um, The issue being, of course, that like 
a lot of these governments super racist. So like the data they're collecting is like problematic and the policies they're instituting are problematic. But from a public health perspective, a lot of the stuff she's advocating is like significantly less problematic and broadly good for people. Um, but is using those same sort of Mm -hmm. statistical data collecting tools and a lot of ways she's sort of pioneering Hmm. not only how to use those, but how to communicate that with people, um, whether that's visually Mm -hmm. or written or just like using that data to support her arguments. Hmm. That is wicked cool. I did not know most of that. I mean, I knew Crimea, Mm -hmm. pretty proud of that, but um, a lot of that was not... Yeah, especially like an ailing life, um, staying active and staying engaged clearly has profoundly good effects yeah. on people. So, wow. and also she does, she sounds super driven. She was just clear and like myopic. Yeah, and in it's a interesting because I don't think I think there's a tendency now to like not necessarily give a lot of credit to like religious motivations, but it seems like at least a, a good chunk of what motivated her was sort of this like early religious crisis of conscience that she's like i need to do something i'm being called to do something and figuring out what that was and then what she did she's like oh cool i'm gonna do this real hardcore it's always nice when it turns out the best way which is that you genuinely do help people and not the weird cult leader way of like god talked to me and said that we have to hate all these people for some reason that i can't understand um those people I don't want to hear from anymore. But the people that are genuinely like, God called me to be a better person and I'm going to do it by helping as many people as I can. Great. We need more of you. We need you to be louder. Uh, I know the whole point of it is to not be loud, which is sort of a double-edged sword. It's like great to be humble, but at the same time, the other people get yeah. way loud, way too fast. Um, like The one interesting you know? thing, which I hadn't really expected going into this, is that she doesn't have like an entirely positive reputation, like by and large, like most people super here for her. But there is this moment in the nineties where like one of the British nursing unions sort of very loudly objects to what they see as like the deification of Florence Nightingale. Um, And in a way Mm -hmm. they, they sort of look at her as like having her being in this pride of place is holding back the profession and is representing some of the like more negative or backward elements of it. And, like, in some senses, that's fair. Like, she's fairly elitist. She comes from upper-class British life, so is, like, fairly dismissive of anyone who doesn't have money, fairly dismissive of anyone who, like, doesn't espouse middle-class values. Um, But I think, for me, what it more feels like is sort of the, like, Marie Curie effect, right? This idea that, like, if you know one woman scientist, the only one you know is Marie Curie. I think it's a similar thing. Like, if you know a famous nurse... She's the face of Pretty women much. In and like And because nursing is constantly associated with a female only mm-hmm. profession, it's really stinky for like the men that yeah. want to be nurses. Like nurse mm-hmm. in your mind is a woman, doctor in your mind is a man. And that's yeah. bad for and both I think genders. too, right, this idea that like or at least this sort of like older idea that like nurses are there to like do what doctors tell them. Like they don't have like their own agency and caring. Is- a hundred percent correct. And doctors yes. will tell you that too. Doctors will be like, no, 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 no. Any doctor worth their salt knows yeah. why a nurse uh, is there. But I think, but, but Florence Nightingale, in a lot of her writings talks about like sort of nursing being its own thing in its own corner and like listening, like sort of putting doctors on this pedestal. And I can see why modern nurses would object to that sort of relationship. Yeah. 
Well, just the nature of like how nursing has changed from her to the 90s. Yeah. Like, that's significant. And I mean, that's true of all um, progressive movements is that you don't cling to the past as much as you maybe. I don't know. It's a dicey thing of like you don't want to be associated with um, problematic past figures, but at the same time, like you wouldn't be there without them. So, yeah, you know, how close to keep them and how distant to be like to be clear about what message you're pursuing yeah and that definitely is she did a lot for us we thank her for it she had these problems let's all move on you know she doesn't need to be canceled i definitely think if there's anyone who for lack of a zeitgeist word here i don't want to cancel florence nightingale because without her we wouldn't have a lot of exactly either um And, like, the sort of one really fascinating thing that sort of popped up over the course of the week researching this um, is that the the NHS, the National Health Service in the UK, has been setting up a bunch of, like, temporary hospitals um, in, like, convention centers Mm. and large venues across the country to sort of, like, overflow um, for coronavirus care. And they're calling them Nightingale Hospitals because they're sort of set up sort of in a similar style to the way she set up her hospitals in... The Crimean oh, that's War. Nice. Sort of yeah. like a nice homage. I love that. I did not know. I I like an iceberg. I only knew yeah, that. Me too. So I was like really glad to have dug in. Her. So I feel like. Yeah, I think it's good. I love it. Cool. I think so. Should we take a break. Cool. So I will start with a question to you, which is, what do you know about the Ottoman Turks? Um, I know they capture Constantinople and rename it Istanbul. Splendid. Accurate. Um, mm-hmm. That the Ottoman Empire and Turkey are not the same thing. That is correct. It's similar to like um, the USSR and then mm-hmm. Russia. Right? Like Turkey is. Um, yeah. And. I know they had Janissaries. It's like their, like their their military, like famous military mm-hmm. unit. Excellent. That's a great start. So I knew uh, that the Ottoman Turks existed, and that they ended around uh, mm-hmm. the First World War, like all the other dynasties in Europe. But they're one of the last um, major players in that time period to kind of go out with I think the last sultan was in like 1922 so pretty dramatic ending um, for most of the monarchies in Europe at that time so I knew not a lot I knew Mm -hmm. not a lot at all I didn't I I blame my Christian white (laughs) upbringing for that of like where we focused our attention in terms of history there's a reason I know who all the kings of England were for a certain period of time and like even a couple queens. So, um, and the presidents and stuff. So Ottoman Turks actually were established in 1299. So they technically lasted 1299 to 1922. That's not a bad run. In the area. Not bad at all. They are all from the house of Osman. I, Cannot confirm or deny that genuinely there's a direct line from the first Ottoman emperor to mm-hmm. the present day. Um, but from what I've read, it seems to be with a little like jumping around with some brothers there in the middle. Uh, it's a pretty, yeah, one family, 
to rule them all. Now, that family is huge. <laughs> we'll get into why in a moment. That family is a mm-hmm. big old family. Um, but Osmond I reigned 1299 to 1326. And he's the founder of the so- so-called Ottoman Empire. Fun fact, uh, they don't call themselves the Ottoman Turks. That's a European language issue because we can't say things. Fascinating. Um, Not surprised apparently. at all. Because he's Osman, O-S-M-A-N. So the Osmanli Turks or Osman Turks. And that that apparently gets turned into Ottoman. So it's completely wrong. (laughs) Uh, But unfortunately, that's what all of my resources said they were called. So we're going to call them the Ottoman Turks as much as we will call them anything. Um. So what are we? We're 1300s. Uh, they're rocking, they're rolling. As empires do, they start to uh, creep out of the central area, which is modern-day Turkey. They start to, oh, this Mediterranean area is nice. Let me take a little of this, a little of that, a little piece here, a little piece there. And as um, the sultans, or what they're known as, hold on, wait, let me pull up my... Basically, okay, let me just sum it up. Um, we call them sultans... They don't necessarily call them sultans. They use it interchangeably, but there's a there's a different Persian word for like emperor or mm-hmm. king or ruler. Um, and then sultan was often used in like the mother of the ruler or the wife or the con uh, the concubine of the ruler. So you don't really see them known as like Sultan Osman. It's not that. It's more like. His name and then his... T- I don't know. It, it mm-hmm. gets a little murky. So I'm going to use Sultan to refer to women most oh, of the time in this episode. And that is the way they refer to it. And then there's other words mm-hmm. for the leader who is the gentleman in charge. Um, and if I find it in my notes, I'll, I'll circle back if I find it. Um, so a couple Sultans roll around. Uh, they're doing great. They're expanding. Um, they go up the Aegean Sea, they go across, they get a little Gallipoli, they get a little of the Black Sea, they go up to Crimea, they get a little bit of that. Um, The big... So uh, if you think about this area of the map, which I don't much at all, Constantinople is on the other side of the strait Mm -hmm. from Turkey. So if you get Constantinople, Constantinople, you're kind of creeping up into Europe from the quote-unquote Middle East, which is all Eurocentric vibes anyway. So, getting Constantinople, also Constantinople named after Emperor Constantine, the first Christian emperor of the Roman times. So it's got a Christian vibe to it. It's the capital of the Byzantine Empire at the time, which if you know about the Byzantines, old Christians, Mm -hmm. basically. (laughs) So the conquering of Constantinople was catastrophic to the quote-unquote christian catastrophic is not my word um it was a big change for the eurocentric christian-minded people uh it then became muslim of spoiler alert the ottoman turks practice muslim islam um that was a big new religion Mm -hmm. for the time if you think about it um and yeah they they eventually get all the way down into um Egypt, up through uh, Libya, all, the coast of the Mediterranean on the African coast. And then they don't get all the way to the Italy, but they get pretty close to Vienna even mm-hmm. um, by the time we're talking about in the 1500s. I mean, it's I'm going to include a map in my notes to kind of show you as far. It shows like the ebb and flow of where they're going. 
as they're doing a most expansion. Um, so yeah, that whole Aegean Sea, Black Sea area that you were just mm-hmm. talking about with Crimea, totally Ottoman Empire at this point. 300 years before old flow got in, Fascinating. Got in there. But you know, you got to have those ports. You got to get yeah. those ports. Yeah, so there's a whole Islamic vibe to all that area as well, which I'm sure makes a very interesting mm-hmm. architectural experience, right? The Russians owned it. The Ukrainians owned it. The um, Turks owned it. I mean, like, what, a, what a melting pot that must be. Um, okay, so where are we? So I am going to pick up with... Let's uh, change areas, kind of. It's not that far. So a young woman is born in 1520, okay. I'd say, 1520. She's born in... Where is she born? Ruthenia, which is, at the time, occupied by the kingdom of Poland. So kind of Poland, kind of... It's its own kind like of ethnic group Balkany, there. Eastern Europe. Eastern Slavic. Area. Okay. Yeah. A Slavic area um, that was probably traded many times over different that areas. Um, kind of Ukrainian looking uh, in terms of its culture. So these <laughs> Crimean dudes <laughs> show up when she's about 15, 12 or 15 years old. They're from Crimea. They're like, hey, we're going to take you. You're going to be a slave. Uh we're just going to raid your whole town, take who we want, sell you into slavery. Uh, we're going to go back to Crimea and um, take you with us. It's going to go great for you. You're that a feels like old a, girl. No like issues a, just there. Just like a, bad, a, a whole lot of bad things waiting to happen. It's where I would want to be as a young girl, for sure. So um, this her name is Roxolana. Uh, which actually means like little Ruthenian one. Descriptive. Because of where she came from. She is very Eastern European looking by all accounts. She apparently has um, pretty auburny red hair, pale skin. Looks Eastern European. Um, Slavic. So she's going to go to eventually take into Istanbul, which is the capital of this thriving empire. Who lives in Istanbul? Um... The Sultan, the Sultan's mom, and his imperial harem. Now, we've talked about harem. We have. They're before. not quite like a recurring we talked theme, about them. but they're there a lot. We talked about them in Kuda's mm-hmm. episode early on, and she was in an Egyptian modern harem, mm-hmm. which is different. This is an imperial harem of the Ottoman so, Emperor. Like, I'm going to guess so, a little bit bigger. Let's talk about that for a second. Um ridiculous by all accounts from what i can tell so no going out women were kept to the palace you can't go out and get you know a croissant not that you could in (laughs) istanbul in the 1500s but like you couldn't just like go enjoy life you were although this is this is so not even on word but do you know that the croissant Mm -hmm. is actually because of the ottoman empire no Can, can we are we we might be. This is like. This is Are so off topic. This right is now? so not even related. Okay, talk but about the Ottoman Empire because you, you were talking about Vienna. Like the Ottoman Empire at one point gets very close to and almost captures Vienna, but then does yes, not. Yes, very close. And so, as one of the like celebratory things, the like French bakers mm-hmm. in Paris bake these pastries shaped like the crescent moon, which is one of the. Ottoman Empire symbols. Which is their symbol. And thus the croissant is Oh born. my gosh. And a symbol of Islam. 
wild oh my gosh what a whole world this is like it's like everything's mm-hmm. connected you know what i mean and that's why we shouldn't actually fight with anyone because cool. we're all just we all enjoy pastry <laughs> um that's really what it's about um that is so crazy Sorry i did not know totally that at all derail this for a wild. Second. so it's okay so where was i so this little teenage russian girl i mean like she speaks polish maybe ancient polish like she's just Let's mm-hmm. talk about it. Fish out of water. Anyway, so they take her to Istanbul because she's probably looks kind of odd and uh, seemed to be. She, I, we mm-hmm. don't know enough, right? We a don't know enough because the overwhelming patriarchal structure of the whole world at this point. Um, also, her, her very humble roots make it like she didn't have someone taken down. And then Roxalana did this. Like no one cares what she's she doing. She just sort so of no shows one's documenting up. it. And then she, from what. By all accounts, and rightfully so, she maybe didn't dwell on her past too much when she mm-hmm. gets to where she gets. So we don't know enough. But one can make assumptions that if you're a 15-year-old and you're being sold into slavery in Istanbul, you kind of just nod your head. Yeah, okay, great. As long as I don't die today, that sounds cool. Okay, yeah, let's go over here. So somehow, whether she was a gift or taken because she looks kind of cool and she's kind of exotic. They take her and she ends up in the imperial harem. Okay, is that um, that feels like not so like the, like right like kind of a big deal to just like end up there. Yeah, it's kind of a big deal, and it's like it's a question of like was she a slave to like serve the consorts at the time, or like was she gonna eventually? It wasn't like she was picked, and you're like now you're gonna be the concubine to the sultan. There's like levels mm-hmm. of hierarchy. There's level of favoritism because the big takeaway I got like all of this stuff, guys. I'm gonna tell you right now. I don't know much about it, so this is my first kind of delving in. So I'm gonna mess stuff up, and I apologize. Um. My understanding is like the system in place for the Ottoman Turks was one of we don't let the sultan get married. He does not get married. There's a sultan. He has a series of concubines. They all get to have one son and maybe a girl, but it's too risky. So you get Mm -hmm. one and done and then you don't have any more kids with him because there's not going to be this jonesing for... The crown by all of the brothers. Interesting. Firstborn son gets to be the sultan. At least that's okay. And then there's a period of transition because then there's, you know, people behave differently when there's rules. So anyway, the the conceived notion at the time that she's entering the harem is that if you have a child with the sultan, that's the only child you have. Once that child reaches maturity, you leave. And that child goes on to do, uh, like, emissary or, like, um, ambassadorships. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll go and run a province of the empire for their brother or for their dad. Fascinating. So you keep it in the family, but there's no, like, jockeying for, I'm going to be in charge. No, I'm going to be in charge. Well, he liked my mom best. Well, no, he liked my mom best. So it's- and that concubine doesn't have too many stakes in the pot. You know, one kid, and then we... There's a lot of contact or no contact. Like, it's mm-hmm. really... So, like, trying to keep, like, the best of both worlds. Like, keep that, like, fam- in the family, but without well, the, like, family power structures that, like, are a complete and total mess in Europe. Yeah. And whoever made these decisions, I don't know, some dude somewhere or some family squabble happened. And they were like, we're not going to deal with this sort mm-hmm. of infighting. The sultan is 
is the problem with this is like the Sultan is the infallible leader and no one will mess with him. And what they forget, I think, this is my interpretation, is that he's still a person um, who needs yeah. people things. <laughs> so, like, family and love and camaraderie and friendship. So, while we think he is pure and without taint of other relationships, all you want as a human is another relationship. So, doesn't really work. Um, the one exception to a harem situation or a sultan situation is... Uh, when a sultan dies and the new sultan comes in, the mother of that newly appointed king is then exalted beyond measure anywhere else you've seen. It is a prestige position. It has its own title called Valide Sultan? V-A-L-I-D-E. Uh, the mother and the first Valide Sultan was... Um, this, well, not the first, but uh, Hafsa Sultan. So Hafsa is um, Suleiman, the Magnificent's mother. And that's where we're going to pick up mm-hmm. with the whole dynasty. So Suleiman's mom, Hafsa, uh, he has just become um, Sultan. So he gets all of this authority and all of a sudden it becomes really clear. Okay, and then we're going to we're gonna trick out your harem. So like, who do you want? And then our little Roxolana is there. And uh, she's really cool and she's hanging out. And she, um, he, Suleiman the Magnificent, if you can't tell, <laughs> has a rep. He, he goes on to kind of be a big deal. He, um, he is, his reign starts in 1520 and it lasts till 1566. So he's a long stay. They have great growth. He does a lot of change. He, he, he pursues the, um, expansion of his empire towards Europe. He's fixated on kind of becoming this great patron of culture. He um, he's just he's at the right mm-hmm. you know he's at the right time. He has the right temperament. He he also has a lot of military wins early on in his career, so that he's seen as this sort of like he's the hot shot. Uh, He's a linchpin in their mm-hmm. in their trajectory. Yeah, um, he's known as a bunch of things. Uh, Suleiman the Magnificent in the West is like our version of it, but he's also known as the lawgiver. And a lot of his policies, actually, I heard, um, lasted for quite a long time. It's not like the next one comes in and like mm-hmm. shatters it all. Like the things he put in place, everyone was like, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> yeah we should do that. Um, so, okay, so he ascends to the throne... Uh, in 1520, he's a pretty young dude, and he quickly gets this concubine, consort, I should say, consort, um, pregnant. She has a son, so she is the reigning consort for the harem. And while he's, while the baby is little, she's allowed to be around, and, like, they know Mm -hmm. they can't have any more kids, but she is the mother of the heir presumptive, so status goes up, right? Um... Her name is very hard, and I'm going to say it right now and not be scared. Mahidevrin. 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 M-A-H-I-D-E-V-R-A-N. Yeah, let's go with that. Anyway, so uh, she has a child. It is a son. Boom, boom, boom. Big deal. Um... I think his name is Mehmet. Um, 
great. I forget when that kid is born. I didn't write it down because we don't deal with him very much. Hold on. Let me find it. Cut all this out, Jen. Just, uh, oh, Mustafa. Sorry. His name is Mustafa. Ooh, yeah. It's going to go great for him in a second. Um, I'm going to get a little confused because uh, Suleiman had like eight kids in a row with the first name M. So it gets dicey in there. So I'm just going to try. Let's just sum up. Okay. It's going to be great. You can read more about it if you want to get into the nitty gritty of it. I get a little bored when it's like, <laughs> anyway, spoiler alert. That's what happens. Um, So she has Mustafa. Everything's going great. He loves his kid. It's going good. He meets Hurum. I'm sorry, Roxolana. Spoiler alert, she gets a name change. So he meets this little redheaded Slavic girl, and he's like, you seem great. And she's like, I'm really smiley and nice. Yeah, I'm pretty great. And something happens, and they click. And they just, it all goes great for them. Um, With complications for uh, the rest of his harem, his mom, and uh, his entire That, that like, 100% so, checks out that a guy's like, I think you're cute to hell with all the consequences let's just change all the traditions yeah totally so that have been in place for like 200 years but also like only 200 years so it's not like it's completely new st- anyway i just love when it's like this is what we've always done i mean like yeah but like just because a couple of your grandpa's dead doesn't mean you mm-hmm. have to right anyway sorry so he meets roxalana loves her thinks she's dope <laughs> and she gets this name called Hurum. Which I think means like joyful or one who smiles. It has all this positivity of like the cheerful mm-hmm. one in Persian is another version of her name. So like clearly she's given off, I'm happy to be around and a happy person and you can come to me with all your issues. And quickly she just starts jumping up the ranks of like who he wants to spend his time with. And once again, let's talk about it. He has a harem full of people at different ranks, at different levels of being there, at different like... You know, I'm not sure if he had how many other kids he had at this time, but we knew he had mm-hmm. the one he needed. So he didn't need to have any more kids. But um, you can only imagine that the hundreds of women that are dealing with like who's going to get in and who's going to have the kid and how do you do the maneuvers all while being contained because they can't mm-hmm. go out into the world. All of their worlds are policed. The only other men they can come in contact with are their eunuch slave people. Or the Sultan. So it's so like, it's a it is world like a really women. rough shelter in place, but like forever. One could call it a quarantine oh of boy. kind. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then once you have your kid, your kid is either like taken away from you at a certain point. You know, you have a limit. I mean, it's just, it's all kind of interesting and different. Um, so yeah, as we said, uh, one concubine mother, one son. So at some point... In this harem, their vibe goes from like, we really like each other. We get along. I'm going to do all the concubine things I'm supposed to do. I'm here for you. You are the sultan. And it changes. And he becomes more committed to her. It is not written like she manipulates Mm -hmm. him. It sometimes is. It sometimes isn't. Most of the time it's written as like he genuinely loved her. He, she was it. She was all he needed. Yes, please. I love her. She makes my world bright. So um, at some point she becomes pregnant and she has her baby. It is a son. Okay. We're okay having multiple sons. It's all right. We just know that Mustafa is first. Mm-hmm. And Mustafa's in charge. 
And then her baby is Mehmed, M-E-H-M-E-D. And all great. Okay. Everything goes, okay, Mahed Devrin is fine. You know, Hafsa is fine. The mom is like, okay, you know, mother of the sultan's like, as long as my grandbabies are safe, we're all okay. Everything's good. Haram gets pregnant again. And this is where it gets different. And it's sort of like the mother and the former primary consort all of a sudden have some issues because we said one concubine mother one son one child and then you're done oh well Hiram's pregnant oh and she's allowed to give birth and it's a girl and we're all okay oh and then she gets pregnant again oh boy oh and again and again so she gets in the next like four or five years she has like five kids um uh Suleiman is like Happy about it, loves all of his children, loves his daughter, has a great relationship with his daughter. Their youngest son is actually born and he develops a hunchback in some way. He develops some kind of spinal Mm -hmm. issue, but they actually, they don't treat it like you would worry about people treating it. They like try and seek him. They try and get him doctors. They ingratiate him with all their other children. They make sure he's like educated and well-nourished and like, has the best care that he can and they don't ever like make him feel they, I uh, from what I they're read they're feeling like they real good well. parents um, just period but especially for the like 1500s yes yeah it's almost like they should have just met each other and not had the whole harem part and they would have been fine together because what happens with her is like okay now she's got three or four sons and a daughter and he clearly prioritizes her and this other consort is sitting over here with the firstborn son being like when should i start panicking Mm -hmm. you know what i mean like what what about this is okay (laughs) i did what i was supposed to do anyway it's a whole thing um the mother hafsa helps out with this sort of conflict that's occurring the unspoken conflict the outright conflict um it's all kind of tense for lack of a better word um but she sort of mediates and because she outranks all of them they have to listen to her she sort of like is the traffic police of the harem and she kind of it buck stops with her for lack of a better word and then they can go to the sultan you know what i mean so um she does her best to like suppress the rivalry but you know at some point the story goes uh, they had a fight, the two women, um, not the mother-in-law, the, I hate the names, I'm sorry, Mahadevran and Huram have a fight. And while this fight has been, has happened before, at some point it became physical and Mahadevran like just beat the crap oh, out of her. No. Um, or at least that's how Suleiman found out about it because he, the story that I heard, which you know, apocryphal, because, like, they didn't write about it, but um, she, Suleiman sends for Haram to come to him to be like, hey, let's hang out. She goes, no, you cannot see me. I have been beaten, and I am not worthy to look upon by you, because you are the Supreme Leader. And he goes, what? Who hurt you? And she goes, I don't want to say. You know, <laughs> like, it's just so, I mean, yeah, we know mm-hmm. a playbook she's playing out of. She's like, no, I just don't want... No, it's fine. It's the mother of your firstborn, uh, Mahajevran. 
beat me up uh, because I'm allowed to have all your babies and I love you so much. And he's like, oh. And then from that point, the seeds were sown and he's not interested in his firstborn's mother in any way anymore. Um, And little did she know that by attacking her physically, it did not do what she, she thought it was exerting her power and like showing Mm -hmm. she, you know, who's in charge here, her, um, I'm in charge here. And it didn't really work out in her favor. Oh, no. So, next big moment. Hafsa dies, the mother. The kind of last vestige of the old tradition, one could say. Because within the year, he decides, Suleiman decides to marry Hurum. Which is a big no-no. Which I think, hopefully what I've said to you is that that is huge. That is, the Pope got married. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? It's huge. He's allowed to, like, have kids and stuff, but he doesn't... Saying he's gonna be committed to one woman is very controversial. Not only that, she may look a little weird to most people, right? Let's remember, she's a white, ginger-haired, Russian-speaking, formerly Christian. She had to convert, so... Very odd person. Um, and now she's like changing traditions or she's making him think that he has to change. Tra- and that's not a great <laughs> footing to be on. Um, so never before was. And also, let's think about this. Um, I didn't I don't think I really constituted this. But like when she was in the harem, even though she was a consort, even though she was the mother to a prince, her status was still <laughs> a slave. She's a slave to the sultan. So there. When you're in a hair, there's a slave status going oh on too. You could you could have kids for the sultan, but like he made that baby royal. You mm-hmm. didn't. Do you know what I mean? Your part isn't as important as the gentleman's part. So a former Russian redheaded slave Christian girl has five babies. And then he decides to marry her. I mean, it's just, you don't hear this. You don't hear this every day. It's wild. And so there's two versions of it. One is she's a witch. She manipulated him. They waited till the mother died. And then they married in spite of all of the traditions. And how dare they. And then there's another one. There's like, their love was so pure. They had the decency to wait. And then they made true and legal what they had been living for years. And I think there's something in the middle there that's mm-hmm. probably a little more fair. I think from everything I read, the the love they had between each other was genuine. And, you know, on her part, I can only imagine like, oh, what? I get to be the sultan's wife? Yeah, cool. I was growing up in a farm in Ukraine, but this works. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm sh- there's a lot of layers. <laughs> And for him, as someone who was probably, like, deified and ostracized his whole life to be, like, special little box, here's a genuine human connection he gets to have after, like, the reigning woman Mm -hmm. in his life dies, his mother. I mean, either way, it's a... Anyway. Cast whatever veil you would like. Yeah, it's a great reality TV show, and I'm kind of surprised we haven't gotten this already. Oh, I think there's a full, like, drama series in, like, Turkey. Good, good, good. Showing about it. Yeah, that's, like, Game of Thronesy looking. Um, So, anyway, she becomes the wife of the sultan. Big, big deal. Uh, She also receives the title Haseki, 
I, Sultan, and becomes the first consort to hold this title. So it's the first kind of analog to a queen that we ever see Mm -hmm. in the Ottoman Empire. Um, So you had this term for a mother of a sultan, and now there's the term for a wife of a sultan. And it is, she is the supreme woman leader in the court. Um, Huge ceremony. He does a big old to-do about it. It's not like they're hiding it from anyone. It is a big deal. It's a whole thing. And then it becomes, how does she deal with the traditions she's subverting while also like, she is the keeper of tradition now as the leading woman in the country. So like, that's mm-hmm. a tricky place to live. Um, you don't make a lot of friends. All of the, you know, there's a lot of politicking going on. Um, the next kind of controversy she has is uh, with her sons. So um, how do I want to talk about this? So, I don't really want to get into it because it's complicated. <laughs> I'm so lazy. I, it's it's complicated and it's it's it. What happened? What ha- it happened? It's all kind of trash and like I wish it didn't happen the way it did. From what I could tell, um, the original firstborn son gets in bad with Suleiman. He has him executed. Oof. All the brothers technically liked each other so even though they became elevated they weren't really happy about their brother getting killed then another brother the youngest brother that had the spine issue might have died of grief because he was so torn up about it i mean that's when it gets really soap opera of like our parents killed our brother what do we do but you know and then there's also a question of like i don't some views once again Mm -hmm. it's all the two-sided coin of this woman so like some of you see it as like she politics her way into like getting her kid to be sultan right the lady and yeah. version of her story and then there's also the story of like it's complicated and families are hard and there was a lot going on with the country at the time and who, what did they care about tradition her mom broke all the tradition i mean it's a whole thing he didn't like mm-hmm. it's a whole thing so if you want to read more about it get into the you know, uh, what's it called? The like hierarchy and the accession, secession, get into the secession lines of like how complicated it is. Uh, it's a whole dive bomb and it's a lot of like, and they went to war and she was traveling over here and they went there. (laughs) I don't know. It's just a little bit too, it's a little Mm -hmm. bit too much for me to get into. Um, the long and the short is her son does become Sultan eventually, or like becomes heir presumptive. I don't think she actually sees him become Sultan because Suleiman actually lives yeah. a really long time. Uh, he lives until 15, what did I say? 1566. So he's 71. And then she, let's get to the sad stuff. Boop, boop, boop. 1558. Mm. So she does precede him. Um, so now we get into, like, my favorite part when I was researching this is, like, yeah, but what did she mm-hmm. do? Right? Like, besides bear sons and a daughter and then make sure those sons got the position they needed and then what? Like, what else did she do? What do queens I f- do? I feel like you're about to tell sons, me what queens right? do after they have the sons. Not a lot, man. I mean, like, a lot of her stuff is all about what her sons are doing. And I didn't want to view it through that lens. I was like, clearly she was mm-hmm. doing other things, right? Apparently not. 
Apparently not. Apparently she was like politicking for her kids and like making sure her daughter got married well. Um, that seemed to work as well. Um, the vague part I can see is the stuff that they don't write about, right? So she, they assume like she acted as an advisor to her husband. She had, they, there are some people who view it as like she had a lot of influence and then others think mm-hmm. that she didn't have as much and she was just like farting around in the harem. Um, she has, you know, she does have correspondence with some of other, you know, leaders of Europe of the time or the world of the time. So there's letters of her to um, different kings and stuff like that. She does the kind of diplomatic stuff, but there's not a lot of like, she loved, I don't know, mandolin music and brought it into Istanbul. Like, I don't see any of that kind of philanthropy as much mm-hmm. as it came from him. And that might be the way women were in court at the time. Also, there was no rubric for how a queen should be. There was a rubric for, like, a dowager, but not for this kind of Haseki sultan that we have all of a sudden. Yeah. Um, and I imagine it's mostly dudes writing yeah. the histories. So, like, there's, right, there's that other lens of, like, you have a bunch of guys looking at this woman and trying to figure out, like, how to write about her when she's doing these unprecedented things. Yeah. Yeah. There is some charity work that she participated in. Um, she helped de- She helped build a couple, like, bath areas, um, a women's hospital, um, some fountains and things like that. She also, I think I saw somewhere that she did some, like, food. Um, ooh, 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 sorry, so sorry. She did some, like, uh, f- soup kitchen kind of establishments mm-hmm. to help feed the hungry. Um that didn't necessarily have her name attached, but that kind of thing. Uh, she becomes ill in the 1550s, and um, she passes away in 1558 of unknown reasons. But um, Suleiman has a beautiful mausoleum erected to her in this beautiful mosque. Um, I think it's known as like mm-hmm. the blue. The blue yeah, because it's you know this, that one? it's originally this like really famous church, and then when Constantinople gets captured, it gets converted into this really famous mosque. Yeah, I might be. Well, hold on. Let me. I did a lot of research about Istanbul, so I might have gotten my hmm. wires crossed. That is fair, but I mean, my, it's the only famous mosque in Istanbul I know, which is probably a me thing and not an Istanbul thing. I don't think it's. I don't. Yeah, I don't think she's buried in the Hagia mm-hmm. Sophia, which is like the famous one. It used to be a church yeah. and now it's a mosque in Istanbul. Um, but it's really beautiful. She has a whole mausoleum uh, erected to her. It's it's ridiculously gorgeous. Like all the geometric tile work, it's mm-hmm. it's worth a view. Um, hold on, I'm just reading about the mosque really quick. It's an Ottoman imperial mosque located on the third hill of Istanbul. Okay. I don't think it is the blue mosque. That's my bad. That's my bad. It's really freaking pretty, though. Um, yeah, and eventually he mm-hmm. would be buried there as well. So they lie and rest together in the same um, mosque, which he's dedicated to her for the rest of his life. I don't think he ever married again. Um, he had one wife. He was 
uh, faithful to her. Um, he, uh, the one thing we do have that they wrote of themselves is that he did write her poetry and he would write under a pen name. Um, and he called her my most sincere friend, my confidant, my very existence, my sultan, my one and only love. The most beautiful among the beautiful. That's really sweet. Yeah. So, like, I think he genuinely, I think, like I said, like, my take of it is, like, they genuinely did love each other. And maybe she, like, met him where he was and, like, was the support he needed as a very stressed out dude running an empire. You know what I mean? I can only imagine. So, like, what happens when they get married? Is there still a harem? Do they, like, do they have to figure that out? I think there's still a harem, but, like, I mean... I don't know if he has any more kids. They have, hold on. Yeah, Suleiman had two known consorts, Mahadevran and Huram. And once he had Huram, they had uh, several children. And um, many of whom died in childhood, which mm-hmm. is unfortunate. But um, yeah, it seems like he was faithful. Once he met Huram, he was like, yep, that's all I need. Thank you so much. So I think there's there's a level of harem that existed of like ladies in waiting and like mm-hmm. structure of that sort but in terms of like concubines to the sultan I don't think they fascinating. have anything her. So she, so very fascinating and not necessarily something that um, well no let's talk about this is how I wanted to end it yeah that's right okay great so um, my favorite thing to come out of this is that this, this phase starts with her getting married to Suleiman which um, becomes known as the Sultanate of Women in the Turkish Empire. And so basically it was <laughs> described in this article as the phenomenon, which I don't think is maybe fair. It's a, it's a trend, mm-hmm. it's a tendency that happened of um, between, like, they cite it as, like, with her marriage through 1656, uh the sul- the wives of the sultan or the mothers of the sultan take on a, a really drastic and much more important role than they previously had. Like the mothers of the sultan always had this exalted view, but then they become more of like, let's have a regency or let's have a little more oversight of like the 13-year-old sultan. And who should do that? Mm-hmm. His mother should do that. Who should do that? His wife, if it's an older person. And um, sultans also like take on a more role of like, if they decide to marry, they, they elevate their wife to a level that's um, not seen in the rest of the history of the Ottoman Empire. And I didn't do much research about how it ended because I didn't really <laughs> want to find out. Because <laughs> it's probably not great for whoever it was. Um, you know, and uh, since the Sultan was seen as this, like, my singular entity, with the exception of, like, a grand vizier, like, um, you know, mm-hmm. his consul of people which was very small it didn't seem like he had many many advisors the vizier was like the big dude along with like the queen so it becomes a more western structure in this time which is good and bad for um depending on who's doing the talking i think um there's also a lot once that starts happening of like "Mm, should we have slaves be this exalted and positions of power and that kind of elitist Mm -hmm. talk so it's pretty fascinating, and it does it does quote unquote end. So, um, you sort of see 
this weird 150 year period where like women take on a more dominant role in the infrastructure of the Ottoman Empire. And was that good? Was that bad? Was it all? And did they sort of like point to her as the reason for that? Like she sort of like. She's the start. They they consider her marriage the start because no other sultan had married before. Mm-hmm. In the Ottoman dynasty, I should say that. Like, I think this kind of version of Islamic rule in a big empire mm-hmm. is very specific to other maybe Islamic cultures that, or other cultures that have harems and have multiple wives and things like that. It's different in yeah. different cultures. So in this specific kind of line of lineage, it was seen as like when they cite the Sultanate of Women beginning it's it's with her marriage mm-hmm. to Solomon. Very cool. So I did some trash pronunciations on those names and I am sorry. Um yeah, so I didn't know most of that. I didn't know who Suleiman the Magnificent was. I definitely didn't know who Hurum Sultan was, let alone his other consort or his mom or even like how yeah, I had no idea. You weren't allowed to get married or anything like that. So the one I picked is the one that like they broke all the rules and I didn't even know the rules to begin with. So I had to do mm-hmm. a lot of other tertiary research. I mean, I think the other thing that's fascinating is like when you look at pictures of her, she looks like a Medici woman. Like she looks like a lady in Florence yeah. in the 1500s. Like my, you know, ignorant brain does not think of all the cross-pollinations you would have with cultures right there on the scene. Yeah, it, it does, sense. but right, it's interesting right. to think of, like, like this sort of, like, Eastern European person as being, like, the exotic foreigner in this situation. Yes. And elevated yeah. to the peak position. Which must have happened all over. It's just a little harder to distinguish in the European countries when genuinely they're right. all the same family, <laughs> so it's not that controversial. But this French woman's coming into Austria, and you're like, you all right, are like cousins. The, the British fine. monarchy is technically like German, right? So, oh, they're 100 percent German, but is that German? They're all Habsburgs <laughs> at some point. True, true, true. They are. I mean, yeah, no, they're all German because. Hanover, because she's the house Victoria's yeah. where they all came from. Here, ready? This is why I know too much. Albert's Sax Coburg and Goethe or whatever. Mm-hmm. So he's from Germany. She and Albert have nine children. They marry all the heads of Europe, basically, and then pass along all of that German blood. And then I think yeah, so Philip is, he's a prince of Greece, but he's of that German strain of people. Like, technically, Elizabeth and Philip are, like, fourth, second oh, cousins. Boy. Maybe not even fourth. Like, like they're close cousins. Because he's, like, blonde and six foot four. He's not Greek. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. He, he ain't Greek. Fascinating. <laughs> Habsburg from Schlockburg or something. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, do some deep diving. And that's fine, okay? They're making it work. <laughs> They've diversified in the closer centuries. So let's all calm down. I'm not saying, like, anything about it. I'm just saying, like, mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. You know. It's amazing what your preconceived notion of what a country, what somebody from a country looks like. Like, just now, when I said, he's not Greek, I'm sure there are blonde Greeks. I'm sorry. Let's all just yeah. calm down. <laughs> it's very tense time. <laughs> I'm trying not to be a generally uh, stereotyping, uh, generalizing yeah. stereotype. Probably a good person. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
But in the 1500s, I think a redheaded white lady in Istanbul yeah, was especially crazy. like marrying a sultan. Yeah, and you know what? You're the queen now. What? <laughs> okay. It felt very yeah. Cool. A lot. There's a lot of those vibes there. I was reading it. Right. Very cool. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think she's cool. I wish I wish there was a little. The only thing I was I got really excited about learning about her at the beginning because I was like, I don't know anything about the Ottoman Turks. Let's let's do it. And then as we got to like her as queen, I was like a little let down yeah. by what was there. So I would love to maybe if I had more time, like go back and actually, what did she do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what did she get to do things? She advised the king. Okay, well, that's something. <laughs> Okay, she did some soup kitchen. Okay, cool. We found a little yeah. bit of stuff at the end there. But all the politicking with like her sons, I found I felt like was the majority of the stuff about her and I mm-hmm. was not interested. Um so that's my failing as a researcher, but if anybody wants to enlighten me as to why that's fascinating, I'm I'm eager to hear it, you know. Yeah. I'm open to it, I guess. Yeah. Hey, so that's Hurum. I really hope I said it's it okay. right. I'm, I'm sure if people have, if they know better than us, they will, I'm sure, let us know. I'm yeah. sure. I'm sure. All right. Amazing. That's all from me. Thanks, Katie. Thanks, Michael. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Missing History. If you have suggestions for women you think we should profile, email us at missinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can get in touch with us at Miss History Pod on Twitter or Missing History on Instagram. We're also on Facebook at Missing History. If you'd like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to our producer, Jen, and to Catherine for doing our social media. Thank you for listening to Missing History.